You're listening to Senior Times Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway Travel Department and Doro Phones, for making this podcast possible. You're welcome to my first series of Senior Times podcasts. Now, it's often been said that we are a nation of storytellers. I believe that to be true, and I am hugely impressed by the number and the quality of women writers that we have in Ireland. On this podcast, my guest is Patricia Scanlon, and Patricia's most recent novel, her 22nd, is The Liberation of Bridget Dunn, And this story about Bridget Dunn is about a very strong woman. And there's a a link to Mary Magdalene, of all people, which is fascinating in the course of the book. But Patricia, first of all, congratulations on Bridget Dunn. It's a powerful read. Uh, But for all of the fame and the, the publications, I don't know if so many people will be aware of your beginnings as a writer, how you came to start off writing in the first place. Um, I was very sick. I didn't know what was wrong with me. It was called endometriosis, but it took many years because doctors didn't know what it was. And so there was a lot of kind of stress and mental trauma. My whole thing was having a roof over my head and having financial security. Then there was a competition in Cosmopolitan magazine to uh, see your novel in print uh, and win a word processor. And I thought that would be handy. And um, I decided, maybe Binchy always said, you should write about what you know. I said, I'll, I'll write about young Irish women. Nobody was writing about women in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And by the time City Girl was done, it was into the 90s. Uh, so I decided to write about modern Irish women. And I sent it off to a uh, uh, pool bag press and uh, said, I, I had read in the book, or in the libraries, they always had the Writers and Artists Yearbook. And I'd read, you have to get their attention quickly because they haven't time to be reading big, long letters. So I said, dear Mr. McDermott, if you publish my novel, City Girl, you'll be a millionaire. I thought that kind of might (laughs) grab his attention. I did it on a New Year's uh, Eve, which was, I wanted to do something positive. And I was back at work then, the following 2nd of January, and I got a phone call. Um, It was Joe Donoghue, the editor from Poolbeg, and she said, I like your synopsis, I'd like to read the the rest of the book. And uh, I got the princely sum of 150 punts uh, for my advance. But you got a number one. Oh, yeah. You got a number one. I was such a little diva. Um, They told me they were uh, going to print 5,000. I was horrified because I used to be reading The Bookseller and all about, you know, the international tours that Maeve Binchy was doing and everything. And I said, five measly thousand. So um, after all that work, so they published 12 and it went out of print the first week. Whoa. It was great. Whoa. And uh, City Girl took off mm. um, because it was something new, it was something different, and it was about Irish women. It must have been a huge boost to your confidence, having gone through such illness and negativity, because, you know, you did come close to the edge, didn't you, I with did. regard to ending your life? I did. I did. And, you know, writing actually kept me sane and kept me going. Um, because you could be sick. I used to remember sitting um, when I'd be low on the, the coal and the briquettes, um, sitting with my dressing gown on me and the electric blanket on and feeling actually ganky. 
but but there was you could actually put it aside and get into your characters mm. and that's always been a gift for me that I can immerse myself through you know loads of operations and things that I've had over the years I have been able to sort of put it aside and immerse myself into my characters mm. lives and become them and um, so that's been a saving grace for me. Also, thinking back to those early days, you mentioned that you were too ill to go out with your friends, to go to nightclubs and to, yeah, to kind of stay in the hotel when they were all on holidays. That's very hard, Patricia. It was hard. I, I did have really hard times when I'd just say, oh, what's the point? Or maybe I won't go on holidays with the girls. But I have great girlfriends and I have a great sister. And uh, and fortunately, my doctor at the time, he knew it wasn't all in my head. Um, so he kept me, you know, he sent me to various specialists. I remember a really nice specialist in Beaumont. And he said, you're being given the runaround. He recognised. So once the, somebody believed, uh, you know, that there was something wrong with me, and I eventually was diagnosed um, in my 30s and put on medication, which helped a lot, um, so I suppose it strengthened my character, Mary. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it was a dark time. But but there was lots, when I look back, I think of the fun time. We had some giddy times. I remember going down to Ross Lair, the four of us, um, lighting a fire on the side of the road and cooking rashers and sausages. <laughs> <laughs> I had a little mini called Buttercup. It was my first car. And by golly, we jaunted around the country in Buttercup and we had such fun. Mm-hmm. There was five of us went on the Shannon once. And uh, I remember the five of us careering off down the, the Shannon. Careering is probably a good we word. We careered down the <laughs> Shannon. I remember, and we, and we used to sunbathe. And I remember there was a line of ninnies hanging out to dry. <laughs> and we just had the best fun ever. So I did my best. I enjoyed what I could have liked, uh-huh. yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and I suppose for myself, I admire myself for that. Um, Absolutely. And still, I still... And I suppose all of that, all of those experiences of misdiagnosis and then diagnosis and becoming a writer, they've made you the person that you are. Absolutely. And uh, it was never a path I thought I was going to go down, you know, Um, writing. I loved English, but I never said to myself, it's, oh, I'm going to be a writer. Um, So it happened the way it happened. And I think the reason it happened was because of the endometriosis. And as I say, there's a reason for everything happening in your life. And it was a path I went down. And, you know, as the books uh, were so successful and then in England they became successful and then they got translated and everything. And I always gave thanks for the gift I was given of writing. And I always, when I sit down to write, I light a candle and I ask, I always say, please give me the words to write for the people I'm writing for. And so I feel it's not just me. And um, I love writing, but I'm very happy in my solitude, getting away from everybody uh, and just writing. Sometimes coming near the end of a book when it starts to push you um, and you just write for, you know, 13, 14 hours and it's brilliant. Yeah, because they're pushing, the characters are pushing you, you're not pushing it. There's this indefinable moment when you get to the crest of the hill and then it starts downhill. But you just never know when it's going to happen. But but it happens. Mm. And then, oh my gosh, that's a great, great feeling when you're scooting down towards the end. Tell us about uh, The Liberation of Bridget Dunn, because that's your most recent book. And I mean, I really do uh, think it, it is powerful and many layered. What made you want to write about this? I had no idea I was going to write about it, Mary. This is the thing, you see, that happens to me. Um, oh, 
down in Rosslyn, my parents are buried in Rosslyn Harbour. And uh, we go down, well, Mary and myself would go down every um, every couple of months with flowers and things, but we always go down for the prayer over the graves. And um, we went down to St. Helens, which is a beautiful little bay uh, in Rosslyn Harbour. And um, there's a nun's house there. It's called the House of the Four Winds. And it's a fascinating house. And I was there when I was young with my cousin because she was a, a student in the Presentation Convent and it was owned by the nuns of the Presentation. Was that where they go on their holidays? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And actually, I remember I met um, a, a man at a launch and I was telling him about it. He said, not, not the House of the Four Winds. I said, yes. He said, I used to swim there. My aunt was a nun. But when he turned... Um, 13, he wasn't allowed to swim with her anymore. And he said he used to love prancing around with her her veil on his head. (laughs) (laughs) You know. So anyway, but it was this lovely private beach there, kind of small beach. And we went anyway to stand on top of the cliff because the Tusker is right across from it. And my grandfather was killed on the Tusker. He was a lightkeeper. And a mine hit the Tusker during the war. And uh, my grandfather died. And so we always say a little prayer when we're there. And... um, I came back to the mobile and I was everything. All my ideas come to me when I'm standing at the sink with a dishcloth in my hand. It's a strange thing. But I remember thinking, I wonder all those nuns that went through those doors, you know, some of them, were they happy with their vocation? Were there nuns who didn't want to be nuns and were very unhappy that they'd missed the chance to be married, have children, um, you know, go and have a career, um, and I just started thinking about them. And I said, oh, I think I'll write about a nun called Bridget. Will you read us an excerpt I from will. it? I will, Mary. If you join the missionary nuns, she'd get to travel far from our clock and escape a life filled with little opportunity. Bridget had recently overheard her parents discussing Granny Dunn's failing health. Bridget can go and live with her, Elizabeth had said firmly. We don't have enough room for her. And if Bridget's with her, we won't have to be worrying about her being on her own at night. Bridget nearly had a heart attack. While she was very fond of her grandmother, her small cottage was dark and pokey. Granny boiled her kettle on the hook. She didn't want the electric, as she called it. She was afraid of it. Bridget would be stuck in the dark ages. If she left to work in Dublin or Galway, Bridget knew she would be turning her back on her parents. She wouldn't be able to do that to them. She'd be riddled with guilt, unless she had a vocation. She knew she didn't have one right this minute. But she could soon develop one. She was certain of it. Sister Bridget, it rolled off the tongue and she would be the best nun the order ever had. So that perhaps when she died, all her sins would be forgiven. Do you know, I'm sure there were an awful lot of young girls who felt like that before they went into a convent. And also there was, the, you know, the great thing that, you know, to have a nun or a priest in your family uh, was a great gift and a great blessing and something to be very proud of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of um, girls were pushed into mm-hmm. um, a holy order and, and young men. And um, there was also the dowry, like there was a tiered system because I interviewed nuns for, for um, authenticity to make sure that I was absolutely right in what I was writing. And, you know, if you didn't come in with your dowry, you ended up as um, a domestic nun, you know, feed in the kitchen and doing the cleaning and all of that and answering the door yeah and so it was you know it it was an interesting way and you just had to give up your whole personality Mm -hmm. um but for all of that and the traditional 
um, I suppose, vocation that Bridget embraced. You know, you you handle and uh, you you visit parts of our feminist history during that period as well, because there's talk of repeal the eighth. There's the the contraception train. Yes, that was was well, that important see, that to get in there the tap- too. It, it wasn't that it was planned really. I didn't say I'm going to sit down and write this tapestry of Irish feminism, but it was in the, it was what they grew up with and what we grew up with and you know women had to go to confession and and they were asked were they giving their husbands their conjugal rights um they had to be cleansed after the birth of their mm. children the churching yeah the mm. churching my mother was churched so was mine. and yeah mm. and uh, i mean they were treated as second class citizens by the church and the state with no rights at all and um so i wrote about these things uh, because i remember the contraceptive train um, when, uh, do you remember Nell and Marion Johnson and all of them, my mother and I looking at the news and we were so delighted, yes, um, that for, you know, for the first time ever, women were going to be able to take control of their bodies. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I mean, you know, when you think of uh, John Charles McQuaid, I mean, he was, he ran the country practically. He had his Knights of Columbanus sending in letters to him saying that they were selling tampons and chemists. I mean, it, it, the mind just boggles, doesn't it, Mary? It does, because they were such different times. Yes. They were such different and, times. And even when I worked in the libraries, uh, you know, a woman had to get, uh, if she wasn't a householder herself, and lots of women didn't have their names on the deeds of the house, she had to get her husband to sign her library card. Uh, women had to give up work when they got married. I had to, I was in long enough then that I, it was a mar- the marriage bar it was called. And um, I would have had to, to uh, give up work if I'd have got married. Um, and there was all those kind of awful kind of, things against mm. women that they struggled against. Can you pinpoint a moment of change that this country has enjoyed where women have been, I suppose, treated differently? Well, I suppose that even though it was into, it was into the 80s before they could actually go and buy contraceptives. Um, but I also think when um, Mary Robinson became president, I remember my mother and myself were going in to visit my dad who'd had a heart attack and it was on the news and we were so proud of her mm. and Manana Heron. Yeah. And uh, actually uh, myself and my sales and marketing manager went to London with City Girl. Uh, it was launched in the Groucho Club and uh, we were Manana Heron. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was great. But I do think that also was a, a big change for women. But I think the Irish women's liberation movement, you know, Nell and Maureen and all those wonderful, wonderful women. They were the trailblazers, yes, I think. Yes, they were. Yeah, they were the trailblazers. Another element of the, the book that's absolutely fascinating is uh, the, the treatment that you have with Mary Magdalene. When Bridget and her sister Imelda, I suppose they... They, they make this journey, journey together. together of reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I have, a, um, I've always been interested in Mary Magdalene because, you know, she was declared the penitent prostitute. Uh, I think it was Pope Gregory declared her that. But I mean, in reality, Mary Magdalene was the equal of Jesus. She was called the Apostles' Apostle. And um, it was the church was afraid of her. And didn't want uh, to show that. But there's a gospel, there's the Mary Magdalene Gospels, which are very powerful. And um, and so I think the time is coming, you know, that the divine feminine energy is coming back. Uh, feminine energy is coming back into the world. Uh, her rightful place is coming. But she 
journeyed up through Gaul, uh, up through Britain and up to Scotland, uh, to Iona. And uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Mary Helen Hensley, uh, we wrote the Bring Death to Life book together. We decided we'd go on the trail of Mary Magdalene uh, to Iona and Mull. And it was just fascinating. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's it's a really interesting um, story. And, um, you know, in this little island uh, off the coast of Scotland, there's a church with a round tower. And the tower is, is synonymous with... Um, Mary Magdalene, because Magdala means the tower. And uh, there's a church with a stained, beautiful stained glass window of a pregnant uh, Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And um, this was the secret the Cathars um, held in the Gnostic Gospels. And they were the ones where they said, you go directly to, to God, you don't need priests. Or And this all frightened the living daylights out of the church uh, because of the knowledge um, that Mary Magdalene possessed and because of the, of the true Gospels. And if you look at the paintings of Leonardo da Vinci, um, it's all in plain sight. They knew, those uh, masters all knew uh, kind of the, the secrets, the esoteric secrets. And in the Last Supper, they say that it's Mary Magdalene is on his, um, is at his right-hand side, mm. uh, not John. And... Um, there's just all this mystery and this knowledge to be uncovered. And the and strength of the, the feminine. But it's pretty uh, controversial stuff, know, isn't it? For Bridget at her, on her 80th Bridget birthday. On her 80th, but what, what I love about... Sister Bridget. Yeah, but she opens to it. What about you, Patricia, and the, the question of faith? Uh, well, I... You know, I, I've let go of the Catholic Church. I suppose I, I would be grateful to it because it introduced me to Christianity and Jesus. Um, I would say that my it's not faith, it's it's a belief, a spirituality that's just part of me, um, that um, I believe we're all equal, we're all here for a purpose, um, that um, life is a beautiful and joyful thing. And um, if... You know, you have the gospel, uh, you must love your neighbour as yourself. It's all about loving yourself too, which is very hard to do, actually, when you actually get down to the nitty gritties of trying to love yourself. Because, you know, women are so used to putting themselves for or a second, you know, before the family and uh, before the parents and minding everybody. Um, but you actually have to love yourself too and appreciate the beauty of every single soul that you meet. And is an and afterlife something that would uh, be in your consciousness? Oh yes, I'm absolutely convinced there, there is nothing that would shake uh, that uh, belief in an afterlife. I mean, I know when I saw my mother's death, I was privileged to be at the death of both of them. And it was like when she left her body, that when she took her last breath, it was like her spirit came out of her and I could feel her power. I could feel her leaving that frail body and uh, that there was so much more to her. And oh, should the pair of them give me great signs. My dad's an awful messer. <laughs> Your free travel card can be used on all expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. 
Here's your chance to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook, designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text. One that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Say hello to Independent Weekend Home Delivery. Save up to 40% with the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent delivered to your door every weekend. Plus, enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long. All from just €5 per week. Search for Independent Home Delivery now. Patricia, let's go back to your childhood for a little while. Um, You grew up in Ballymun. Was that kind of... Um, I'm sure it wasn't as built up as it is now. When I when I grew up uh, in Ballymore, we lived in Stormstown Road. And we had a beautiful green outside our house, uh, Wadley Green. And uh, we played out there morning, noon and night. And we cycled up to Noxidan, which was miles away past the airport, to go fishing. Um, you know, we had this freedom mm. that children will never have in a million years. And we all minded each other. Um, the different age groups minded the younger ones. And um, we went to school. Uh, it was long before uh, Ballymun, as it's now known as, was built. Um, there was two farms. We went to school to St. Pappins, uh, a lovely little country school. And we used to get a bus at the end of Pappins Road um, or else if you legged it to the end of Ballymun Avenue, as it was then, it's now Griffith, uh, uh, Clasnevin Avenue, um, if you legged it to the end of uh, Ballymun Avenue, you only had to pay a halfpenny. Uh, you had to pay a penny from Patton's Road. So you'd see all these kids legging it um, to save their halfpennies because you could spend the halfpenny and you could get plenty of sweets for a halfpenny. <laughs> <laughs> and there was two farms on either side of the school. And uh, I mean, I remember picking blackberries on the way home from school and um, the school was, there was fires, the old fires in it. And I remember the headmaster used to stand with his back to the fire and block it. And, <laughs> block uh, the heat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but that was, that was the school I went to. It, it was that far back. And it was, it was rural. And um, 
the freedom is coming across and the the, the sense of fun yes, that you I obviously mean, we had. we all walked home from school mm. and, you know, getting buses that, you know, when we were five, five and a half, my mother brought us to school for the first couple of days and then we had to go and get the, remember the buses that you just stepped onto, um, the old, old buses. Um, but yes, like um, my mother would make us up a picnic and all the neighbours, there was be this kind of trail of cyclists, little cyclists and um, the younger ones would be carried on the crossbars. And off we'd go out to fish uh, in the river at Noxidan uh, or else to watch, you know, planes at the airport um, miles away and not a bother on us. And and it was a freedom that, um, it was a carefree freedom, you know, mm. that children nowadays don't know. And we were out all day, every day. So that was a gift as well, it wasn't was it? It was a gift. And I remember in those days as well, every, you'd see every second garden would have a pram out in the garden um, because the baby was put out to get the fresh air for an hour or two. Um, you'd never see that now. Mm, no. So, you know, when I see kids now and they're stuck in their their iPads and their phones and um, all the games we played out on the green, you know, rounders, um, tennis, hurling, football, everything. And then we'd have the hopscotch on the road or the two balls, Queenie, a packet of rinse, so all of that. You know, those things. Mm. And children would look at you sideways now if you said Mm. anything like that to them because they wouldn't have a clue. That sense of fun um, and freedom that you had as a child, you've maintained because uh, you still have that feeling and that lifestyle really with uh, the, the the mobile home that you oh, have down I in just Wicklow. I love Wicklow. I'm, I'm a country girl at heart really, you know. Mind you, I mean, my parents are from Wexford so I'm half country and we're blow-ins in Wicklow. But um, yes, I have, I have that, this is my retreat and uh, the caravan in Wicklow. And uh, I'm so lucky there's a 32 acre field in front of us. And before the pandemic, shall we say, we would go down the 17th of March, the site opens and you see the whole cycle of nature. You know, you see the field, being our field. The farmer thinks it's his field, but it's <laughs> ours and he's our farmer. And um, you see the field being ploughed and you see the crop coming up and now it's it's it gets green and you know then the way the wind um, rustles through it and it's turning gold now and then we'll see it being harvested and you know the farmer is great um, because there's generations of children have grown up uh, on the on the verandas looking into the field. And you have a cohort of pals haven't you that yes. go down with you? Well my sister has a mobile, my sister-in-law has um, a mobile and we're the three of us are beside each other looking into the field and then our other great friend one of the gals is uh just across from us and um we're the Prosecco gals oh. and yeah we've been fr- well I mean Mary of course being my sister my sister-in-law there's a, just the four of us and we know the ins and outs of each other and the upside downs of each other and we've laughed with each other and we've cried with each other and we go away on holidays for a girl's couple of days and um and Raw was accompanied by Prosecco and we have the giddiest of times and there's nothing like your good women friends for a good laugh mm. or a good whinge or a good night on the Prosecco. Oh, that, uh, <laughs> it sounds good it on is. the deck. It's great, it is. It's, and sometimes they're impromptu. You know, they're the best ones. The ones, oh, will we have a glass? Will we open a bottle? Oh, breathe us down, let's open a bottle. Um, Mary's, Mary's down, open a bottle and then we all bring over whatever's in our fridges. And, um, you know, have a little banquet as well. Do you get material for your books from uh, your your time down in Wicklow and watching people and 
hearing stories? Um, I suppose I'm always watching and I'm always listening. It's just something you absorb. Um, and But I don't, would never use family or friends or anything, but I use the universal experiences of us all. Um, you know, women are now in the sandwich years. They're caring for parents. They've got teenage children. Um, lots of women are, are um, working as well outside the home and they're juggling balls right, left and centre. Mm-hmm. It's very, very hard going. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've been themes uh, in, in my novels. I, I write about what we're all going through, really, the universe. And that's why the books, all of our Irish uh, writers uh, I think are very successful because they write about those themes and they're universal. They Women in Japan, women in China, women in Russia, Estonia, you know, they will understand. Mm. Yeah, because yeah. you've had international success with your novels and uh, translated into many languages. Yeah, 18 languages, I think, at the minute. Um, and I love getting letters from uh, writers and I love get, or, uh, readers abroad, uh, especially, you know, foreign readers. But I also love getting... Um, letters from the emigrants and that they say, you know, they love that the books are set in Ireland. And, you know, I remember one woman doing a review of it and uh, she was quite snooty. And she said, uh, City Girl was too parochial, it wouldn't travel. And I remember being really shocked because this was quite a successful woman. And I had never thought, you know, that Irish women were any lesser or living in Ireland, you were any lesser than, you know, uh, heroines from London or New York or, you know, I was really taken aback. And uh, so now I'm quietly smug. Mm. Um, she was wrong. Yeah. She was very but, wrong. Yeah. So there was that thing of being lesser because you're Irish or because, you know, what what would happen in an Irish parish was too parochial to 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 kind of uh, travel um, mm. across cultures. But as you say, but it's a, it's, it's the universal themes. Yeah. What are your thoughts about aging, Patricia? I don't like it. Do you? Not? I don't like it, Mary. I um Okay. I one thing I do like is the older I get, the less inclined I am to um, appease people. And if something is annoying me, I say it. And. Um, you just don't care any, you know, you speak your truth. And uh, so I suppose I like, I don't care anymore a lot of the times. Um, but uh, in terms of the aching body and the creaking and the eyesight going a bit and that carry on, I have so much to do, Mary. I haven't time for this like age what? stuff. What, have you, what, do you, what do you want to do? Well, I want to go on the trail of Mary Magdalene. I want to go to Girona. Um, there's more stories there about her. I want to do the Camino. I want to um, I want to visit um, New England in the fall. Mm. Um, yeah, I want to do things like that. I want to do a bit of gadding. Um, I think you've done a fair <laughs> bit of gadding now. I, know, <laughs> right I want to gad gayfully and joyfully <laughs> and, and not kind of going, oh, me knee. Um, you know, so that point of view, I don't like it. I like the wisdom age brings um, and the empathy and hopefully a bit of kindness. And I hope I can be kind to my nieces and nephews and understand what they're going through because I've been through stuff like that. You know, it's hard growing up. It's hard being a teenager. So there's good things and bad, but um, I'd like my physicality to be a bit better. I hate going around like a 
creaky old one. But you love life. Oh, I love life. Love life. I have a lot to do. Um, I want to go painting. I want to go back to painting. I'd like to read some of my books again, actually. People tell me, that was a great, Francesca's party they seem to love. Um, now there's the people want me to do a sequel to The City Girls. Well, I can't call it City Geriatric, but I don't know what we're going to call it. Like, But it would be very interesting to see where those women are now. And that, and th- remember I was telling you about standing at the sink with the uh, dishcloth in my hand? Um, something came into my head about Devlin going to look for her adoptive or her real mother because oh, she was adopted. Yeah. And I said, stop, I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it's sort of niggling there. And Devlin also had a Me Too moment, um, uh, which I'd like to write about. And Maggie has now got a blended family who don't get on. You see. Oh so my these, goodness, this book yeah, is nearly written. These things are coming into my head and I have to have my year off to gad. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, despite the fact that you want to have a year off to gad, you're also hugely involved with uh, the Open Door Anthology. Tell us about that. That's a wonderful initiative. Yeah, this was my year off, allegedly, you see. And I get a phone call from New Ireland. It's Nala's 40th anniversary. Um would the National Adult Literacy Agency. Would you be interested in um, doing something, an open door or something? I said, no, I'm having a year off. <laughs> when are you meeting? So anyway, we had a great meeting. And so um, in my role with the hat on as editor, I got in touch with a whole load of authors and they're absolutely fantastic. You know, we have um, Roddy Doyle, Christine Dwyer Hickey, Deirdre Purcell, Sheila Flanagan, Malatu O'Corey, Graham Norton, um, Carlo Gebler, um, you know, just so many, 27 fabulous authors. So you approached have, them? Yes, I did. And they obviously... Yes. Fantastic. And, yeah, well, I actually, some of them I just tell. Uh, my friends I don't ask. <laughs> I just tell them, like Deirdre and Sheila and Kira Garrity. I said, right, you have to do a short story. Mm-hmm. Um Roddy Doyle kind of, I tell, ask. Um, Graham Norton was wonderful. Uh, within 10 days of getting the email, I had his uh, short story and very moving it was too. Oh, fair play. And what I loved about him was he, list, our guidelines are short, accessible um, sentences with accessible language. And um, he, he just read the two stories I sent as samples and uh, he sent one a beautiful story. They've all, all the stories are so different, Mary. It's like Christmas morning when you get the manuscripts in. They've been coming now in dribs and drabs. Uh, and then there was an avalanche, a tsunami of them came um, at the deadline date. But you, you open your emails and you go, oh, here's another one. Oh, here's another one. And then you open them and you start reading them. And I was reading Christine Dwyer Hickey's and the hairdressers the first day. I was loud at a hairdresser's. I had my mask on, fortunately, because it was so moving. And so it actually brought, I was crying in the hairdressers. Um, Some of them are very funny. Nulo O'Connor's is very funny. Um, They're all quite different. Roddy's is about um, a grandson and his grandmother in the COVID. Uh, They travelled the world in the back garden. She's in a wheelchair. And it's just lovely. Um, and these will be here for Christmas, won't they? This it's this is a book that would be a most beautiful Christmas gift because anybody can read them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's called Voices. Uh, it's called Voices and all these uh, writers have a voice. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're very excited for our emergent readers to because sometimes these stories are the first stories that they'll have read of a, a, an author. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people who come back to literacy are 
very, very brave, um, very intelligent. They've hid all their lives that they haven't been able to uh, read or write. Um, they've held down jobs and nobody has known. And um, it's very humbling being in their company to see how they've struggled and strived and overcome. It sounds amazing. And um, as we said, perfect as a, a Christmas gift. Beautiful Christmas gift. Mm -hmm. And I'd love if I, if I could get all the authors in to sign uh, uh, some copies. That would be a treasure to have, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. It certainly um, would. But hopefully, hopefully, maybe restrictions will have lifted and we'll have some sort of a, a launch or something anyway to celebrate it. Well, Patricia, well done on that, the Open Door Anthology and Voices, and also on the, the 22 novels. We look forward to the next one. I can't wait for the sequel to City Girl. <laughs> and um, when this is all over, hopefully then you'll get to go and do a bit of gadding. But I listen, will gad as far as I can and as much as I can. <laughs> thank you for being a part of this. Oh, it's been Mary, an absolute pleasure. thank you. It's my pleasure. It was so nice to spend time with Patricia Scanlon. Patricia's a force of nature, a very warm and strong woman. And I think back to when she was, as she describes herself, a giddy young one, and wonder how her life might have evolved if she hadn't become sick with endometriosis. There's no doubt she would have found an outlet for her energy, her humanity, and her means of reaching out to others. But without endometriosis, she wouldn't have been quite the same Patricia that she is today. She is brave, she's outspoken, and she's a champion of women. She lights up every room she enters. This Senior Times podcast was produced by Simon Murta and engineered by Mark Murphy.